This is the Delivery Space podcast. Whether you're interested in software delivery, business change, or transformation, we have some great content lined up for you. We launch into different areas of project delivery and bring you insights and experiences that you won't get from a book. Welcome. This is Nisha, and this is our episode on carving out the space for innovation. I'm so excited this morning because I think I've badgered our guest quite a lot to get on this podcast. Hello, Karim. How are you? Uh, Well, thank you, Nisha. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really well, thank you. It's raining outside, as we were talking about before we came on. So I'm trying to like psych myself up for a, a muddy workout outside. Well, yeah, rather you than me. My gym <laughs> session was yesterday, so I'm chilling out today. Today is your rest day. It is recovery. Karim, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners and those who watch us on our YouTube channel so that people can get to know you? Sure. Uh, well, I'm Karim, and uh, I'm a, a business agility and innovation coach. I've been a scrum master, I've been an agile coach, been a project manager, been a developer if you go back far enough. Um, And uh, I'm also a scrum trainer as well. So uh, I try and uh, mix things up a little, do some training, do some advising and consultancy, but general uh, technology, agile space guy who's been around a while. That's the most concise introduction that we have had on the podcast. But what I do want to rave about is this. This, your, your six enablers of business agility I absolutely love this book and I've used it to inspire those teams that I have coached with some real life examples. And I can tell how much painstaking work has gone into this. Can you tell us about your motivations for writing this before we start? Yeah, well, the short answer is I didn't have any. Um, I, I I was never someone who, even, who ever considered writing a book. I think I even say that at the start. You like, I'm a, I'm a mathematician by training um, who became a software engineer, and now my my specialism is innovation and entrepreneurship. So, I, I think I've almost never written an essay in my in my life, apart from maybe my GCSEs when I was 16 in English, maybe. And other than that, I was just science, science, science. So I'm not a writer. And I did a presentation. I was giving a talk at a Scrum gathering in Austin, and. A lady approached me, she was from the publisher who I ended up working with, and she said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I actually had, but in the, like everyone does, like if I were to write a book, it would roughly be this, right? And that's as far as I got some like chapter right. headings, which was, you know, a couple on intro to business agility, then the six enablers, then some leading the change that's like seven, eight, nine, ten chapters. And then that was that. And I said, yeah, kind of, but I'm never going to do it. And then she said, well, why don't you fill out a, a, um, a proposal? So still when I was in Austin. And then I didn't because I didn't want to write a book. And then I got marooned in Dubai because I, I had a class, two classes there that got cancelled. But then I, it was so expensive to change my flight home that I just ended up staying for four days by the beach, which actually wasn't the worst thing in the world. <laughs> but I thought I'll use this time to write this book proposal. So I locked myself in the room and I did that. And then they accepted it. And then I had this sense of panic as like, how do I write a book? So as actually then when I started thinking about it, I I realized you can reach so many people as a coach and that's actually not very many, right? (laughs) And then you can reach more people as a trainer, but still I only ever have about 25 in the room max. So you can reach a few more people with some video content, but, but actually I felt like I could take years worth of knowledge 10 15 years in the agile space and condense it 
and maybe someone will read it and I could reach way more people in a way uh, less uh, uh, sort of uh, heavyweight way of, of coming on a course. So I wrote it. It was my lockdown folly. I actually just got my head down and did it. It was hard, but, you know, I managed it. Um, so, yeah, I didn't want to. It happened to me is the short answer. Well, they say books and uh, things that want to get written find the authors. But it's very clear how much rich experience has gone in here. I use some of the examples that you put in here because I like to inspire others. When, you, when I'm coaching teams, I like to inspire with real life examples of agility. And rather than um, trying to pull things out of my own, uh, out of a bag, you, you have them like within here to, <laughs> you know, to take out and to show teams how, how other organizations that may not even be related closely to technology have done it. Yeah, and that was the idea. You know, I like to I like to pull from history. I like to pull from the military. I like to pull from yeah. from technology and and bring to and I, I wanted it to be interesting as well. Like sometimes there's just stuff in there I find fascinating about our evolution and our past, and tried to bring some of that in because business books can be dry. And and you know, I felt like yeah, the more examples you can give, the more stories you can wrap it in, the more people will be engaged by it and remember it as well. So yeah, I tried to do that. Um, but uh, hopefully it was, um, well, glad you enjoyed it because it's one of those things where you have such imposter syndromes like I'm not an author, I'm just a guy who who does an agile coach, but uh, um, it seems to have landed pretty well. So uh, I'm, I'm pleased about that. It makes me it makes me happy to know that, that I'm reaching people I wouldn't ordinarily have reached. Yeah, you are. Um, and, and not just with the book, but with also the content that you put out on LinkedIn. As I said to you, I look out for your uh, posts. I look out for your content because I know it's coming from practitioners like me on the training that you do. So um, and also, do you know what? It's really cool to see that because you're, you're not diluting from the practice of Agile or Scrum or other frameworks. You're actually enforcing good practice. And there's a lot of um dilution i think that's going on in in our world of agile right now where you've got a million different ways of approaching that's ex approaching agile or approaching agility that's explained to teams i think sometimes the essence of what we're trying to do is get is getting lost yeah and, and i think if you look at the best organizations you know they don't they don't sit there and say what are the practices we want right if you hear jeff bezos speaking they've got They've got their 14 management principles and they weave that into everything they do and the practices emerge right. based on the way they want to act and the and the principles and values that they want to to instill in people. And so they don't say, right, what should we do? They start with like, wait, what what's what's core to us? And for them it's their management principles. For others it will be other things. And then they think long and hard as leaders about right how do we how do we operate as an organization now rather than hey consultancy a come in and tell us how to do things it's like yeah. how how are they going to know and i think that's really important and the difference is you have people like jeff bezos people like steve jobs previously who who actually are focused on helping the organization improve rather than being locked in an office for uh, 12 hours a day uh, not not helping or speaking to anyone. I think if your leaders do that, then you don't you don't need all this stuff underneath it. It emerges, and you can you can build that yourself, which which I think is rare. Yeah, it's rare. It takes talent. It takes a lot of I don't know, how I would I term it human insight 
um, into yourselves, your teams, and, and what your organization needs to be doing. I was asked a question recently around um, agile transformations and, you know, what, what kind of things I would start off with um, as like anchor points when I first, you know, are, um, I'm introduced to senior leadership and teams as a coach and the first thing I try and find out is what's your strategy what what do you actually want to achieve in your transformation and sometimes I'm let, met with the answers that I kind of expect to hear which is we have this overall strategy but we're not really sure how to go about it um, sometimes I'm met with we, we just have a particular need and we need your need your help to get the teams aligned to try and achieve this particular need and then what you're trying to do as a coach is to always work towards what's the bigger picture here and it's a senior leadership team really how well are you bought into what you want to try and achieve right yeah yeah I, well it's great that you get those answers because quite often when you ask what's the the broader strategy you're met with like tumbleweed right and, and people people either don't know or they don't have one or being agile just is what they're trying to do and it's like well you must be trying to support something you know what are your biggest challenges and 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 can we just talk about how we would address those rather than than all of this other stuff, which may or may not be be an approach to to moving in the direction you want to go? So yeah, it's yeah. great. It's difficult sometimes, especially when people don't have that bigger picture, and then you're kind of working in this this local optimization in a way. It's like we're going to operate here, but how does that fit into the bigger picture? It's yeah. like, well, it probably doesn't is the short answer. Oh no, and that's how I earned my stripes as a scrum master. So I used to get my kicks from working with teams and doing great work with those teams as like as you just described in a, in a local sort of setting we can control what we can control and we're going to release what we can release out there to meet a need right yeah but the moment you start touching other teams outside of the core teams that you're working with that's when you have problems around like your ways of working what are they like what what is the synergy like between us and our other parts of the organization do they even know about you know how how we work how have we explained it what's leadership's take on it that's when you start coming up against those challenges yeah oh so when i became a scrum master i think it was about 2008 ish right i started playing with it not very well I started started trying to do it and, and and you think you know you learn all this stuff about teams and about scrum and you think this is great and you try and do it and then nothing works and you say you start realizing every almost every yeah all right teams have challenges right and you can work with that but very quickly they stop being the limiting factor yeah and what becomes the limiting factor is the organization and it, the analogy I, I like to use is the Ferrari in a traffic jam right and you can you can keep tuning that engine all day long, but actually the best way to help this car right now is to move all the other cars. And that's why the natural progression, I mean, I know scrum masters do work at the organizational level, right? But, well, they're supposed to at least. But then then your focus is like, well, these are the things that tend to get in the way of teams. Let's start working with them. And then you almost by definition move away from the team because you're trying to address these things way beyond the team. And, And that's why what was originally the six impediments to business agility. Right? <laughs> um, I was seeing them everywhere. It's like this impediment and that impediment. And it evolved. I saw some early drafts. There were loads and then I kind of condensed it. And right. and then I just made it a bit more positive because it can be an enabler or a, an impediment depending on what you do. So I think you're so right. You're working with the teams and, and the teams are rarely the problem. Right? It's, yeah. it's, it's everything else. So you have to work on all levels if you're going to achieve any meaningful change. 
Yeah, and sometimes scrum masters don't get the visibility at those levels and have got to really try hard and say, right, I'm going to venture outside of the teams right now and try and understand what's going on, build those relationships, see what's happening in other areas yeah. of the organization. Also be a little bit of a PR person for my team and what that's doing in the effort to inspire others, right? If you've got great ways of working and you've got a few functions who you're working with it within the business and you're achieving results, that's a good way to do it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I learned the benefit of good marketing. I don't mean marketing as in spin. I mean, no. just demonstrating to the rest of the organization, the successes, yeah. because, you know, the diffusion of innovation curve, right? You've got the innovators and the, uh, and the early adopters. That's the first 16% of your organization crossing the chasm to the early majority. The, the, the other 34% means demonstrating it's worked in your organization with people like you in your context. Yes. And if you can't demonstrate to that to them, they, they, they don't want to be first. So yeah. that messaging is vital if you want this thing to spread, which presumably most people do. Yeah. So talking of innovation, let's dive in. Yes. What, yeah, what are those levels of innovation, Krim, that we need to think about when it comes to business agility? Yeah, I think I think just more broadly, it's, it's worth defining that those levels of, of innovation. Uh, yes. and, and it's worth pointing out that each of these things I say is going to have, exist on a continuum between incremental and radical. Yeah. So there's, there's going to be somewhere, that, but I'll, I'll talk largely about uh, what, what Gary Hamill calls the innovation stack. Uh, and that is you know, four levels of innovation from the least to the most impactful. Right? And the first is operational innovation. We're probably familiar with that. Mm -hmm. That's our processes, our practices, our frameworks, our tools. And that's just improving how we do things, again, in an incremental or radical way. We should do that, but we're not going to get a lasting benefit from doing that because loads of people will copy that. That will spread. Right? So that's, uh, I mean, that's the first level of innovation, if you like. The second is, is your standard products and services. That's the iPhone being launched. That's uh, Google AdWords, right? yeah. the, the two most successful products, I guess, of the last couple of decades by some distance. And, uh, and again... We should absolutely do this. This is this is a good thing to do, but just look out that everyone else is coming for you when you do do it. You've got Dyson had bagless vacuum cleaners. Now everyone does. Every every phone looks like the iPhone, and everyone has an electric car now since Tesla introduced them in 2008. So, yeah, that's a good thing, but it's less impactful than some, and we'll get onto that. The third level, and this is actually. Probably my favorite level, even though I do love the products and service innovation. And that's what some would call strategic innovation, what I'm going to call business model innovation. Mm -hmm. That is the business model around your products and services. For example, Adobe you used to have to buy an Adobe product for yeah. 300 quid or whatever it is. Now it's a subscription model for X amount. That's, that's, a, that's a business model innovation. And the more radical ones would be, would be Uber and Airbnb and Spotify uh, but the, the low-cost airlines were a business model innovation. And so, uh, and my favorite example, Nespresso, right? They kept failing and failing with their high-priced machines selling to bars. It's like, okay, well, we'll sell to households. We'll make the machine cheap and we'll do a, a repeat revenue model based on, on subscription of the, of the pods, right? the coffee pods. Yeah. Business model innovation. The, the product didn't change. I find that fascinating. I, I'm, I'm really into that because that's your strategy. That's who your customers are. That's your pricing model. That's what you do yourself, what you do with partners. And there's so much scope for innovation without even changing your product. So that can be incredibly impactful. That's the third level. Fourth level is the most impactful and is probably the rarest, and that's management innovation. 
how we lead our organizations. And, mm. and there's a reason that Toyota was so profitable for four decades. And, and it's, yeah, the Toyota production system had something to do with it, but also their culture, the way they led the management philosophy was so different. And you can't copy and paste that onto another organization. <laughs> Many tried, right? So it, it's, it, it's that that sets the scene for everything else, which is why I love having those leadership conversations. You set the scene for all those other kinds of innovation to happen. So for me, they're the, they're the four, four levels of innovation. Product owners really focus on the middle two, product yeah. services and business models. Leaders really should be focusing on business models and management innovation and, and practitioners really uh, on, on operational and maybe product innovation to a certain extent. So it's, there's a, a space for innovation for, for everyone. That's the great thing about it. That's I, and that's what struck me most about it. But there needs to be some scene setting going on, right? So within organizations, you can't have leaders in, in the setting that you're describing where at all levels, you've got uh, the mindset of innovating, of continuously improving. But that that has to be driven by serious buy-in from leadership, right? I'd go further. Go on. Buy-in's, buy-in's great, but they have to, they have to drive it, right? Think yeah, of, yeah. Like, Think of the most innovative organizations. I'm going to say Amazon. I'm going to say Apple. I'm going to say Tesla. It's like, who's driving that? Steve Jobs. Yeah. Jeff Bezos. Elon Musk. It's not like you've got some middle managers trying to do it and they've said, oh, you have my buy-in. It's like they're, they're actively shaping the organization, building it from the ground up for innovation, right? Whether it's the day one philosophy in Amazon, whether it's just like it's Steve Jobs like getting involved and, and saying, if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone else will. Yeah. That's where it comes from. And I think too often we have leaders who are bureaucrats. They're, they're sort of, uh, they're, they're money people, right? And, and they're, they're in there. And, and a bureaucracy is about maintaining the status quo and generating consistent results, which is sometimes very useful, by the way. I'm not just saying it's not. But not when you're trying to innovate. You don't innovate your way out of a bureaucracy. It doesn't happen. You innovate your way out by creating a culture of experimentation and failure and, and collaboration and, and, and having a strong vision and, and by telling the organization, sharing with the organization how important it is that we innovate. But if we don't, then of course people won't innovate because there won't be the structures and the governance and there won't be the space for it and there won't be the skills for it. So yeah, the, the setting the scene is absolutely vital for this. It comes from, the, it comes from further on even beyond because it comes from the board of directors. Yeah. Is really where it has to come from. Yeah. But it's also getting closer. So it's not holding yourself at a distance from the people who are actually doing the work. It's getting close no. enough to those people to inspire them, right? And having yeah. that vision to inspire them. So there's a lot of work that has to be done at that management level, at that leadership Huge. level. Yeah, closer to the people doing the work and closer to the customer as well. Right? Because you don't get these ideas from a dashboard no. Or a report that gets sent to you once a week. You get there by by really spending time with your customer, understanding their pains and their needs, and 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 what the solutions are, and and working and, and spending time, as you say, with people. And I, I often get leaders who say, "I don't have time to to work at that level." And I say, "Well, Steve Jobs did. Every 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 Monday or every other Monday, whenever it was, they had a product review or the products under development. He's in there giving his opinion. Mm. So." He obviously found the time to value that stuff, right? If you think that some other stuff is more important than getting in and seeing what's under development and, and guiding that and inspiring people with a, with a vision and empowering them to make it a reality, 
great, keep doing that, right? But I, I, that's that's not how you innovate at all. And and I and I think from from all of the great, I mean, I don't want to quote Elon Musk necessarily because he he may or may not be some people he aspired to be like. But you know, he spent three months almost sleeping in the factory to fix the issues they had in in Tesla for for a sort of pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. He was in there with the people fixing the problems when he needed to be. And then and then when they were largely resolved, he, he would remove. So you, you can't not get your hands dirty, I think, as a leader. I think sometimes we think, oh, we'll just stay up here and we'll empower others. And no. you should. But sometimes you've got to get in and get your hands dirty as well, because otherwise you're too removed from everything. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I respect leaders like that a lot oh, yeah. more. I, I would yeah. look at them and go, I'd, I'd actually want to emulate your behaviours your the the striving that you have and also the concern and empathy that you have for people that are actually doing the work right yeah so you you oh. yeah you you would you would aspire to have those types of behaviors those types of traits um in terms of in terms of good behaviors um well not good great behaviors of leaders that you've seen what what are like you've described some already but what are other behaviors if i was working for someone that was emulating those behaviors what would it feel like oh it would it would feel it would feel like psychological safety it, yeah. it would feel like people who will not berate you for trying something and it not working yeah. and actually who would who would share the things that they've tried that haven't worked it would feel like providing a space to 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 be human with people it would feel like somebody who takes it upon themselves to help you grow mm. because I, I think that there's a quote it's either from bill campbell or it's in a book about bill campbell the trillion dollar coach is like um you you, you uh, in order to be a great manager you have to be a great coach because the higher up you move in the organization the more your success depends on making other people successful right so if you're not helping to grow other people uh, then then you're going to struggle and, and how else do you do that it's coaching it's mentoring so you see those behaviors but also articulating that vision that customer focus yeah, and creating the strategy and the environment so that people are crystal clear what we're trying to do because we can't decentralize decision making unless people know what we're trying to achieve the outcomes that we're trying to get right otherwise mm. like well they'll all go off in different directions so we need to grow the capability we need clarity and david marquet talks about this competence and clarity right and we need to to all understand the intent what are we trying to achieve why is it important so communicating that inspiring coaching mentoring creating that culture of safety to fail being around people at the at the gemba right, mm-hmm. where the work is done i think all of these behaviors are the behaviors of great leaders and, and you, any great leader you want to think of will probably be exhibiting those behaviors and and, and so many more as well all right but you know we, we often we see some maybe some bad behaviors sometimes as well so no leader is perfect these these people we hold up as great leaders are, are flawed individuals this don't get me wrong yeah but they also have some 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 really great points as well they must do or they wouldn't build these organizations yeah and i think um i i, I just want to say like i've i've seen a few of those that are fully invested and and a consistent trait i see <laughs> from leaders that I really admire is that they're not scared to get close to the people actually doing the work to speak to the teams to provide that clear crystallized focus it's very rare though and it's it's very very rare that I've seen them um actually do that and I feel like 
I feel like that's a challenge that organizations are experiencing today when it comes to innovation. I feel like that we have a marketplace where we do need to respond and we do need to innovate. We do need to get closer to our customers to, to have that dialogue around what their true needs are. But I feel like there is a layer of leadership that is holding themselves quite often more often than not to a distance and i feel like mm -hmm. that's one of the challenges that is a barrier to innovation what other challenges have you spotted corinne i i think and i think you're absolutely right on that people do have this you know i think it's changing i think the the kind of the the era of the the kind of the the cfo becoming the ceo and just like managing the money and then just saying you do all the other stuff i think maybe we we've, we've seen we're coming towards the end of that era because all of the all of the great leaders we the, or, or the most effective organizations now these are these are people who understand product and understand customers and and get in there yeah. so i think i think we're seeing that shift but but what gets in the way of innovation is is the same stuff for me as, as what gets in the way for, for agility and i think the two things are are two sides of the same coin so you have you know, there's, firstly, I'm going to start with I'm going to start with culture because if you have a culture whereby you're, you're a bureaucracy and it's all about avoiding errors, it's yeah. about saying we are we we measure success by the mistakes we avoid. Wonderful! I cannot make any mistakes, but I just won't do anything interesting. So, preventing people, I worked with one company and they their innovation department. They were saying uh, about experimentation. There was a poster on the wall saying "Right first time, every time." Like what? What message is that sending? Because in order to innovate, you will have to try lots of things. Some of them, as Marty Kagan says, and I use his words, a lot of them, your ideas will suck. Yeah. <laughs> they will. Yeah. They might seem like good ideas, but when you put them in front of the customer, you realize it's a terrible idea. And that's just par for the course. Everyone will have to go through that. So if you don't have this culture whereby we can get it wrong 20 times, cheaply and easily and quickly, don't, don't keep spending millions of pounds and failing, right? but keep having ideas that don't work and pivoting and then maybe changing them, right? But if we don't create a culture whereby that's okay, no one will take a risk. No, no one will say, I've got this really crazy idea. It will probably fail, but it, it just might not, right? And, and, and so that is absolutely vital and, and leaders create that culture. And with that comes the, the governance model around it mm. because we, we have a governance model that's based on fixed scope, fixed date, what does the ROI will fund this? Is that great? In that scenario, you want things to succeed because I'm giving you this much money. So you have this project risk mentality whereby we minimize the likelihood each project will fail because no one wants a project to fail. But some projects need to fail or some initiatives need to fail. So for me, you need to take more of a portfolio risk approach of, yeah, we've got 10 things on the go. We know two or three of them will fail and we'll lose everything on that. Hopefully not so much. Mm -hmm. Four or five things will be semi-successful. We'll make our money back on a bit more. Two or three things will be blockbusters. And if we take that, if we take that portfolio risk approach that, that venture capitalists take, because they know that will happen when they invest, they have mm -hmm. some wild cards in there that will probably fail. But if they don't, you'll make a fortune. I think that that, that kind of portfolio risk approach is vital, which means incremental funding, means running loads of short experiments, culture and the governance go together there. They're the two biggest things, I think, that prevent innovation in organizations. We, we have this hierarchy and this bureaucracy that tries to make everything succeed. And then we say, well, it, it kind of works, but nobody cares. 
right? We built this on time and on budget, but it's not innovative. No, because you didn't take a risk, because risks are not rewarded here. And that's disappointing. And those those kind of organizations, you think, well, in this current marketplace, what's the level of longevity you're going to experience if if you're not willing to take risks i found this great quote i'm going to i'm going to read it out because otherwise i'll butcher it right it's from your book where you quote uh, jeff bezos and he's saying things like um, we've tried to reduce the costs of doing experiments so we can carry on doing them yeah so it's it's almost like you know, experimentation is at the root of it but you have to make it safe for your people to experiment to fail yeah. fast but to experiment yeah i mean there's a. I was reading about Adobe. They have this this thing called Kickbox. Yes. I'm fairly confident it's Adobe. You heard of that, right? Yeah. So they've got these these boxes, and and then like anyone has an idea, it has this kind of break glass in in event of an idea, right? It's kind of a bit of a joke. And you you open it up, a couple of chocolate bars in there, and then there's a, a series of six steps to test your idea, from super quick running an experiment with your customers, right down to pitching to to, to senior leadership for funding of this idea. And there's a charge card in there with a thousand dollars. So if you need to run some Google ads to drive some traffic to test your idea, you don't have to fill out a form. You don't have to go and get permission. You don't have to navigate a bureaucracy. You go and grab one of these, and there are thousands of these boxes out around the organization each year, right? That's a million dollars they invest in this. Mm. Uh, and, and you just do it. And then you go through these steps. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's going to get people thinking, I've got this great idea. I know, I can go and do that, right? Rather than... In some organizations, you speak to someone and it will just it will just like bureaucracy is a great way to kill all good ideas. And yeah. so you actually have to put those things in place. You have to care enough about new ideas coming through to, to put that in place. Otherwise, yeah, you're right. You'll make a little more money in the short term and you'll you'll make a lot less in the long term. Yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's unfortunate, but it's a short term view of the world, I think, that's that's causing us these problems. Yeah, so it's broad-minded thinking, and it's also doing doing the hard thinking, Karim, because I think what, what it it takes a lot of envisaging, a lot of breaking out of our own habits as leaders, our own habitual thinking around everything has to be safe, everything's got to be a safe bet on on our portfolio. Yeah. We got to secure this ROI to keep our our shareholders, our board of directors happy. But it's a case of actually becoming a bit more adventurous in our thinking and testing where our limits are, right? Oh. Uh, yeah, and, and if you've read um, Roger Martin's work on strategy, and, and if anyone hasn't, you should, because he's the man. Um, uh, it, uh, he, he talks about it's like you, you can't use data to innovate because innovation is about the future, and that mm -hmm. doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at data sets, like data sets exclusively look at the past, and so, actually, there are leaps of imagination involved in, in, in well, he talks about it from a strategy perspective, but in innovation, you have to use your brain to, to imagine what could be true. Mm. And so, you know, the scientific method doesn't work when you're envisaging what could be true. That works when you're trying to discover what is true mm. and will always be true, like gravity, right? But, but with, with this stuff, it's like, it's leaps of imagination, it's narrative, it's storytelling, and then it's systematically trying to understand, as, as Roger says, what would have to be true for this to work? And can we make that true? And can we gather data to, 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 to ensure that we can make that true? And that's where lean startup and design thinking come in. And I think imagination is something we don't engage with as much. But if you look at some of the best innovations, like 
it's a leap of imagination. It's it's not a, a data analysis that gets you there. And 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 that's a very, very different skill set to what most engineers have, right? And and I'm an engineer. <laughs> it's it's something we don't nurture or necessarily hire for in organizations. Like creativity. Mm. It's a tough one. Yeah. Or cultivate within the organization. Oh, yeah. For like an an engineer to not experience that rush or that 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 rush of delivery. Um, and having to meet deadlines and, and all the rest that goes with it, the ways of working, the, the regular grind, but to be able to take, create that safe space for engineers to be able to move away from that and get creative, you need to put effort into that. You can't just expect engineers, product people to come up with those ideas like this. That's what you do, engineers and product people. You come up with, no, you've got to create that safe space for people, right? You've got yeah. to say, this is like, how do we do it when we want to think of fresh ideas? You must have had your own kind of processes when you're going through writing the book. You get outside, you go for a walk, you do something that's going to inspire your creativity. That's there's, I'm sure there's a lot of neuroscience behind this where you, know, you do need to get into a bit more of a flow state, a bit more of a relaxed state in order oh, to yeah. be able to generate those ideas within yourself. Yeah, and you need, you need to be not stressed right as well because yeah from a neuroscience perspective like if you're under pressure if you're trying to hit a deadline it's like you're in a slight stress mode you're not fully engaging that prefrontal cortex right, right. So the, the the neurological pathways to that have been inhibited and and so it's like when you when you relax when you chill it's like you're back like your the brain that part of the brain that does this that thinks creatively that can grasp abstract concepts it can solve complex problems that part of the brain is now accessible fully. And, and that's why, you know, sometimes people say you're in the shower or when you're going for a run, yeah. like these great ideas come for you because you're relaxed. And anyone who's trained as a coach, you, know, you can't coach someone who's stressed. You've got to get them relaxed first. Then they unlock that part of the brain. The same with creativity. You have to create an environment for that creativity. Uh, Ed Catmull talks about this a lot in Creativity Inc., uh, a book about Pixar, um, which is another great one. Uh, okay. and about, I haven't read spend, that one. Oh, it's, it's really good. He, I um, add it to my list. Yeah, do, do. And uh, he gives a very different picture of Steve Jobs, who, of course, owned Pixar. Right. Um, and he, he paints a picture of him as being very supportive and, and very hands-off and, and empowering of them. It, it was very complimentary, which is, it was nice to read. And, and, and he says, you know, his job is to create the environment for creativity, because if people aren't being creative in a company like Pixar, then what have they got? But I think we need maybe not as much as Pixar in a bank, but you need some and you need to create an environment for it and the space for it, as you say, and in the governance processes. And for people need to know it's OK to have wild ideas. You start to see how all this stuff comes together to, to form this this picture of whether this stuff is likely to happen or not. And then you can also see why it doesn't happen in most organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that I found in working with consultancies and also being a freelancer and, and having a taste of how different organizations operate over the years, um, some doing this really well or some creating pockets of innovation, but still there's that overriding dominant culture of let's not do anything wrong. Yeah, right? which, starts, which starts in schools, I'll be honest. I, uh, I have two okay. different girls and, yeah. and, and you, don't, you don't get that celebration of wild creativity in schools right you just don't it's kind of rules it's structure it's what this is the right answer a little bit maybe if you're doing some creative writing sometimes but you know in schools we don't teach creativity won't reward it and then when we hire people we we kind of 
we hire people who are rule followers at the bottom of the hierarchy and they get to the sort of senior leadership. It's like, hey, you're a product manager now. You're a senior leader now. It's like, right, what do I need now? Creativity. Well, where is everyone who's creative? We filtered them out at school and at the start of their career. So we don't have that now. Let's get some consultants in to help us. It's just it's crazy. Yeah, but that's that's like, I'm a consultant, right? And I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> but I, I do need to be honest, like just, just getting consultants in to... Um, inject that creativity isn't the way because the consultants no. are here for a short period of time. You're paying them to turn up for a short period of time and then they're gone. What happens to yeah. your organization then? Like there, there needs to be those lasting behaviors, those lasting mm. beliefs even that are infused into our everyday, right? Yeah. it's not. And if you look at, again, we could name any company we want. You look at those who do it best. Yeah. They don't say, come and teach us how to be innovative. They craft, yes. the, the, the leaders craft that culture every single day. Yeah. It's on their mind when they wake up. It's on their mind when they go to bed. How can I craft this culture of creativity and innovation? Not how can I get someone in to do it to us? It's not like getting a painter and decorator in. It's it's not the same. And, and you know, whilst consultancies can help, they're not the solution to this. You as an organization and leadership are the solution to this if you choose to be. And, and all that at best you can get people to hold your hand as, and advise you as you go. But you have to own it and you have to drive it. That's why I say more in buy-in has to be driven by the top. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think I, I fully embrace that. And I, I've seen instances where it hasn't been embraced by the top because the top is still sticking to those um, yeah. those outmoded beliefs, to those outmoded sentiments of the past. And yeah. it's not it's not serving the people well. So you have teams that I work with that want to innovate, that want to introduce those new ideas, but then very quickly they hit that ceiling. Yeah, and we can't really blame these leaders, right? We're talking about a lot about leadership and how great leadership enables it and how commonly leaders don't enable it and they actually prevent it. But yeah. they're existing in the same system everyone else is existing in. If you look at what they're incentivized to do, very rarely... And this will come from the board of directors, right? And I've, and I've sat on boards. This is very rarely do they say, hey, we want you to create new revenue streams. And we're going to measure you based on the percentage of the revenue that comes from new revenue streams. So you better get innovating. We're going to measure you based on the culture you create to enable that. That's not what happens. What mm -hmm. happens is, hey, we're going to take what we did last year and we're going to add 5%, 10% on that. And we're going to say, you need to increase from um, sales from existing products and services by X, go away and do that. It's like, well, so they do. They go away and do that. And innovation costs time, it costs energy, it costs focus, and more importantly, it costs money. Now, Amazon spent $40 billion on innovation mm -hmm. last year. It's like 11% of its net revenue. I, now, that's money that comes off the bottom line that shareholders want. So if shareholders and boards are saying, don't spend money on this innovation nonsense, just maximize profits today, they don't care if you die in 10 years, they'll have sold their shares by then anyway. Yeah. So then the board of directors are saying, don't bother about this stuff. Like, so you can't really blame leaders for focusing on business as usual, on exploit rather than explore. It takes a very strong leader to say, actually, no, it's important to divert these resources over here because as Steve Blank says, exploiting pays the mortgage, exploring pays your pension, mm. right? But 
no one's interested in their saving for tomorrow right now. So I, I do have some sympathy with these leaders that we yeah. keep beating up on today. But I, I think it's they're existing in a very difficult space as well. So I go in to organisations, Karim, and speech teams, speech leaders, try and coach them to uh, new ways of working because that's often the hook. That's often why we're engaged to introduce them to new ways of working so that they can either deliver at pace, have more efficiency. Innovation does not seem to be on the, the, the top list of priorities, at least on a lot of my engagements. I never get, I never get um, hooked into any sort of assignments or land contract roles where they say, Nisha, come and help our and coach our teams to innovate because it doesn't seem to be a priority. And yeah, they, you're yeah. right. Let's not leadership bash, right? Because yeah, they, they, they have their priorities and they have their priorities set at a level above them. Um, but for people like us that do work with teams that want to start to get um, the teams that we're working with, who we care about, who we respect in terms of the craftsmanship that they bring to the table to create that space for them so that they can get a bit more creative. What advice do you have? So uh, firstly, focus on what you can change or influence. Yeah. Because there'll be a lot that you can't, you know, I do a lot of work with, with government clients and they say, yeah, but the, 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 the civil service funding structure is X. I'm like, well, you're unlikely to change that, right? <laughs> whoever you are, even if you're the permanent secretary, even if you are the minister, quite frankly. Yeah. So you, you, you exist inside a context, recognize what you can't change right now mm -hmm. and, and accept that. You know, I, I often talk about, hey, you've got to focus on all these things, but maybe you can't. So focus on what you can focus on, influence what you can influence and start small. I, I think the more... And I, I learned this in, I worked in a big transformation, one of the biggest at one of the UK-based banks, you could probably guess. Mm. And one of the mantras was proceed until apprehended. Because every time we asked, hey, we want to do this, it would be like, oh no. Every time we did it, not only was it successful, but no one even noticed we were doing it. So I'm not, right. saying, I'm not saying like completely violate all laws, right? But there are small ways of working. You can just change and I guarantee this is one of the plus sides of leaders being removed from the work. They're not going to notice that you're working differently. They might notice that you, you're getting better results, in which case, great. Now they have a decision. Do they tell you to go back to the old way of working and lose those good results? Or do they say, fine, keep doing what you're doing? So taking what you can control and just making those changes, there's nothing to stop you mm -hmm. from doing a whole range of things. Can you reinvent the governance model? Probably not on day one, but can you can you make space inside your sprint for innovation to, to come up with some new ideas? Maybe you just load yourself up to 60, 70 percent and say, hey, deliver the sprint goal and then bang, you can play around with these ideas. Yeah. And maybe they make it onto the product backlog soon and maybe we implement them and maybe we drive some benefit there. And then over time, we do more and more of that. And then over time, we, we can evolve this a bit more. It's not plan A, but it certainly is something you can do to, to have an impact. So I think there's a lot people can do. And there's a, a lot of sort of learned helplessness. It was like, well, if leaders aren't interested, we can't succeed. It's like, but you can you can improve by 2% or 5%. And that's actually quite good. Right? Yeah. You tell me I'm going to be 5% better uh, at lifting in the gym. I'll, I'll take that right now. I'll take 1% <laughs> on, my, on my deadlifts because I'm hitting the plateau. All right. So it's... It, that's still a result, right? And we should celebrate that.
Yeah, I like that. And that also gives individual responsibility. Do you know, Karim, I came from a project management background, right? Of doing things A, B and C. Makes two of us. Right. My story is that I saw a, a scrum master doing exactly that. So I was brought on to a project just to look after overall coordination, stakeholder management and that kind of thing. It was a complex program. And I just, I was burnt out from a massive program that I was working on. I was come to mama for everything, right? Pure project management, command and control style, because that's what I knew. That's, that's what you teach. That's what you're taught, right? That's what I knew, right? I could see this guy. He was a scrum master. I'm telling you, he had a great rapport with his team. They were doing exactly that. They were loading their sprint only to about 65% from what I remember. And then the rest, they were working on improving the product with the ideas that they had. They had like great relationships with the product team. They were, um, they had more cohesion within the team. They had better relationships with their stakeholders, whereas we were scared of giving bad news to the stakeholders. Again, we were work. I was working out stereotypes, right, of typical project manager in my role. And I was looking at this guy as a scrum master going, how is he doing this? Like, what is he doing that I'm not doing? And that was my magnet. That was yeah. my magnet to look at scrum a bit more closer. And I was welcomed into that environment so that I could sit in, I could see what they were doing. And, and yeah, that is what inspired me because, yeah, we had bureaucracy. In that organization, we had a ton of bureaucracy, yeah. but he was infusing it. And, and that's, that was my hook. You create a little bubble of, of culture and, 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 and that's great. Who is that person? Are they still coaching? They sound great. Yeah, they're a scrum master. I called him my scrum Yoda. Chris Selby <laughs> is his name. Um, but yeah, he, he was the guy who inspired me. Um, oh, it was, yeah, it was really cool. And, and to watch him doing, uh, that and yeah. operating like that with, he was working with a bunch of teams. It was almost like, yeah, it was a scrum master for a couple of teams, but then in charge of coaching a load of other yeah. teams that were working on the same program. But yeah, that was my hook into looking at That's agile and scrum. Yeah. You see that, right? You see, because when, when people are working in that way and people are engaged and collaborating, it looks like fun and there's yes. an energy about it and people walk past and they're like what are they doing I want, right. I want, I want that right? yeah. and, 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 and it's like well people come and they have a look and they're like oh, well, we're working in this way and, and here is it as long as you can demonstrate results it's like great and we're getting these results and then other people might go well I want to try it. a bit like you right I want to try it and then someone else does it right. and it can you can get some some momentum in that way if you've got those people who are and if you've got managers who are strong enough to sort of hold off the the the, the organizational antibodies that want to come and destroy you right? and, and and if you can do that it's like you can get you can get a good thing going now to make that sustainable it's hard because often when those people leave that that dies so the, the downside is that you need those people to stay in place but you can get some momentum going and you can influence people's lives on on a small scale which which is great so hey 10 people who didn't love their job now do that's a win. It's not 10,000, but it's 10. Right. Who've gone from working in a soulless, bureaucratic way to being creative and being customer focused and being engaged in their work. You take that win and then maybe another team does it. Hey, that's 20. Good. Mm. That's 20 people now who are more engaged, more collaborative, more more effective in what they do. And then you hope you can grow that. So yeah, I would I would always encourage people even even if they can't do everything that you know that, that we talk about around all those six enablers, but there's so much you can do on the ground, and so much is written about that. 
that's almost why I, I avoided that side of it. I avoided the here's how you enable this from a leadership perspective. But yeah, I mean, my, my background is, is just that's helping teams do those things on the ground, right? There's yeah. always stuff you can do. Yeah. No, Especially I... if you call it an experiment. If you call it an yeah. experiment, you get away with murder. <laughs> I love that. That gives me a lot of inspiration for my next assignment, Karim. Thank you very much. No worries, no worries. And thank you for joining us today. I'm so grateful that you came on and we got to hear about your experience and the advice that you're giving um, teams who are working through some of these struggles, but also want to innovate at the same time. So um, thank you. If people want to work with you, Karim, contact you, have any questions for you at all, how do they get in contact? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm very easy to find as my name is, I believe, unique, Kareem Harbert. So uh, you, can, you can find me there or, or you can go on the Agile Centre website. Uh, it's my company, um, agilecentre.com, T-R-E, spelled the British way, um, .com. And you can just, just ping me a mail or, 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 uh, or, or drop me a, a note on, on LinkedIn and, and, I'll, and I'll happily chat or point you in the right direction if I can. It might not be instant because I'm often traveling, but I'll, I'll loop back to it always and then see if I can help. Thanks so much. Thank you everyone for watching and listening. Please do follow us on our socials so that you don't miss out on great episodes like this. Bye for now.